68 of Yukon 360. That is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. It's a very special episode because we have with us a new member of the Yukon 360 team. Tyler Silverio is a student who's joined us and he's going to be joining us for the, the foreseeable future. Tyler, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a senior I'm at Yukon. I'm a communications major, minoring in digital art. I enjoy things, just digital things in general. That's why um, I took this up. I'm excited to learn about digital production, and I hope to see where this leads me in the future. Excellent. Well, welcome aboard. We're glad to have you. Thank you. Tyler, of course, joins our, our familiar crew of myself, Tom Brain. I'm your facilitator of sorts, my colleague, Julie Bartuka. Hello. So excited that we have Tyler here. And of course, Ken Best from the Mansfield Center Bureau. We are working today. Yes. We are functioning. <laughs> we barely. Are ba- barely. Just barely. <laughs> we are barely functioning today. Well, I don't, I, I don't have the technical problems today, so that's always good. No, it's, it's my turn today to have technical problems. <laughs> but everything seems to be going well now. Why don't, we, uh, why don't we jump right off a little news? Ken, you've got a news item for us. We, we, an award, as I understand it. Uh, yes, just got notice of this yesterday that a uh, UConn professor will receive an award from the National Communication Association at its annual conference in November, which, of course, is going to be conducted virtually. Communications professor Charday M. Davis was named the recipient of the 2020 Golden Anniversary Monograph Award from the National Communication Association, and the award honors the most outstanding scholarly monograph published during the previous calendar year. Professor Davis was recognized for being a co-author of the article, The Strong Black Woman Collective Theory, Determining the Pro-Social Functions of Strength Regulation in Groups of Black Women Friends, which was published in the Journal of Communication. The monograph examines black women's communication patterns in ways that call into question decades of assumptions of interpersonal communication research, which has largely been generated from white middle-class college students in rural parts of the United States. She'll receive the award on November 21st at the NCA, not the NCAA, it's 106th annual convention. So congratulations to Professor Davis. I'll probably talk with her about this at some point. That'd be great. Yeah, congratulations. And, uh, you know, speaking of, of new things, things we've just learned about, well, I guess we haven't just learned about this, but it's new. Julie, uh, you want to tell us about something new, an exciting thing happening. I do. Today is the official launch of a new occasional interview series that we're going to be hosting here on uh, UConn 360 called Brave Space. So this is a project that came out of our office, University Communications, and I joined the team a little bit later in the game. And it's going to be a series of frank conversations with students, faculty, staff, and other community members that's going to amplify some diverse voices and hold space for the myriad issues related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. The first official segment is actually going to run in our next episode in two weeks, But today, I just talked briefly with two of our colleagues who were on the committee that came up with this idea and who we'll be hearing from in the future. Jess Zarell is the communications director for the School of Fine Arts, and Lisa Stipak is the editor of UConn Magazine. How did Brave Space come to be? Where did this come from? The Office of Communication at UConn put together a task force to just talk about issues 
on campus and off, but it just seemed like there was a real need to address diversity, equity, and inclusion, at least within our office, and see what we could do personally and immediately to really try to make a difference. And then if it so happened that we had ideas that grew from there, that would be great, but we wanted to start from just what we could do. I really liked the idea of doing a podcast either as like a live ongoing thing on Instagram and Facebook or as a standalone podcast with Yukon 360. We didn't have a ton of ideas for the format it was going to take, but we knew it was important to give space to have these important conversations, these difficult conversations, and sometimes the awkward conversations that people are afraid to have because they think they're going to say the wrong thing or use the wrong term or get something wrong. This is really a space to just be brave and say what you want to say. Talk about your experience on campus, your experience as a student, as a member of the faculty, as a member of the staff, and just shed some light on these areas that we don't otherwise talk about and see what we can do to really improve the culture on campus and the community as a whole. Lisa, you are the editor of UConn Magazine. So you have facilitated as the editor, as a writer, and as somebody who edits other people's work, many different conversations about many different things. But this is something a little new for you. What are you most excited about as we embark on this new series? So many things. (laughs) I was excited to join Jess in this right away as soon as she talked about it, because in my role over the last five or six years with the magazine, I've been blown away by the voices that we have on campus. And we talk all the time, Julie, about how many, how there's, there are too many stories and not enough ways to tell them and not enough places to put them. And the combination of another way to tell these stories, another venue for them with the timing of something that needs to be done now. I mean, it's interesting. We're doing this as part of a task force on a day that there is a scholar strike to, to say we need more than task forces, but it doesn't mean that we don't continue to need the conversations. I'm just excited to have these conversations. I'm excited to learn more about what I don't know and share that with everyone else. So I'm really excited. We actually already have our first three interviews kind of in process. So these will be trickling out over the next couple months. I spoke with the director of the Center for Judaic Studies, Avi Pat. He and I spoke a lot about some of the books that he's co-edited that have come out recently. One is about humor and the Holocaust and how people use humor to cope with different kinds of tough situations. He co-edited another book recently about understanding and teaching the Holocaust. Um, we had a really great conversation about anti-Semitism today and how that kind of dovetails with everything else that's going on in terms of discrimination and what we need to do about it. Jess, who did you speak to recently? I spoke to Kelly Ha, who is a master's student in the School of Social Work. She has done a great deal of work with a campaign called I Am Not a Virus, which is in response to reports of 
outright displays of anti-Asian rhetoric and behavior related to COVID-19. We've profiled her on UConn Today before, but it was really exciting to just talk to her about her experience, especially given the pandemic. And Lisa, you will be speaking to someone who actually has already been on the podcast and was a great guest, and we're excited to hear from her again. Tell us about that. Manisha Sinha is the Draper Chair in American History here, and she's always got something fascinating to say, but the reason I want to speak to her right now is that the day after Joe Biden announced Kamala Harris as his running mate, Professor Sinha had a piece in the New York Times about what that means to her personally as an Indian American, and I just can't wait to hear more about that. Awesome. Well, we're super excited to get going with Brave Space, and thank you both for telling me a little bit about it, and we'll be hearing from you again soon. Thank you. Brave Space, as I mentioned, will be a segment that pops up here about once a month, starting with our September 30th episode. And the segments will also be shared on UConn Today, and they'll be easy to find on our website at uconn.edu slash uconn360-podcast. There's going to be a drop-down menu where you can filter out Brave Space-containing episodes. And we just encourage everybody to join us because we're going to dig deep into some tough questions that everybody's struggling with right now as we learn and grow in this space. That's, that's a great idea, and you can read more about it on UConn Today uh, with the story we're having, right? Yep, that I have to write. At <laughs> <laughs> some point. By the time uh, this comes out, yes. Yes, by yes. the time this comes out. No, it's, it's, uh, it's a great idea. I can't wait to, to hear it. I think it's going to be fantastic and shed light on a lot of uh, important stuff at the university. And let's stay with Julie. In fact, you know, we're on a roll. You've got something else for us today. I do. So this isn't an official Brave Space interview, but I think it kind of fits in nicely. Uh, It touches on this whole diversity, equity, inclusion thing that everybody's kind of grappling with right now. So I talked to 2011 graduate Adam Giardino. And when Adam, who's originally from Franklin, Massachusetts, chose UConn, he already knew he wanted to be a sports broadcaster. While UConn didn't offer a program in broadcast journalism specifically, he knew we had a great journalism program, and he started working at WHUS Radio and took advantage of every opportunity. Within the first week of his freshman year at UConn, Giardino was calling a game for the men's soccer team, who ended up becoming the number one team in the country that year, for thousands of fans that were listening. Now, he broadcasts minor league baseball teams, including the Yankees affiliate Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, and a slew of college teams, including UConn football, where he's a sideline reporter for IMG, and UConn men's ice hockey, where he does play-by-play. Earlier this year, as the protests that were sparked by George Floyd's death raged, and people in every corner of the world started reflecting on how to dismantle some of the systemic racism they were seeing, Giardino thought about how he might affect change in his own sphere. In his decade as a broadcaster, he noticed that most other announcers were, like him, white men. He started raising money and reaching out to some contacts, and he had a goal of $3,000, which he was going to use to give stipends to black aspiring broadcasters, and we'll talk about why. This isn't exactly a lucrative uh, field to go into. And he quickly raised more than $25,000 and got offers from black broadcasters to also serve as mentors, so he started a nonprofit called the Black Play-By-Play Broadcasters Grant and Scholarship Fund. You've 
established the Black Play-by-Play Broadcaster Grant and Scholarship Fund to help Black hopeful broadcasters kind of break into the business. So how did this come to be? How did you decide to get started with this project? I think for all of us, when the protests and the rioting all started across the country, I think it it spoke to all of us in a different way. And for me, it it spoke truth to something that I already knew to be true, that in my decade in minor league baseball as a broadcaster, that I hadn't come across a non-white male in the industry in terms of being a lead voice of any of these teams. And in Major League Baseball, there are two. And in the minors, in my 10 years, there have been three total black broadcasters. So when you're looking at an industry where, you know, in the big leagues, there are TV and radio jobs and the minors, there are all these radio jobs, it's over 200 jobs and do have seen a, a grand total of five of them in a decade. It's, there's something else at play. And it's, it's not necessarily racism, right? And that's, I think, what we're, what we're coming to terms with, that it's systemic racism, that it's things that generationally are affecting black people that are preventing them from having these same opportunities. And for for me, with with all of the protesting and wondering what can I do to affect change in this situation, right? I, I, I felt pretty helpless to maybe go down to, to Louisville, right, and, and figure out what we can do for Breonna Taylor. But in my world, which is broadcasting, I knew that I would be able to, to help change this and make something tangible happen in, in my particular field. And you mentioned in one of your other interviews, you saw that as female voices kind of started to come into the field, that was something you were like, this is a, you know, this can happen, this change can happen. Right. It's, it's something where it opened our eyes. And because in broadcasting, every other broadcaster that I'm with, I'm friends with. And so it's other teams, other broadcasters, we're all just friends. And so I think in the same way that we're hearing often now is it's not okay to say, I don't see race where, oh, these are all my friends. No, you need to see race and realize that in the International League and AAA baseball, where I'm with the Scranton Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders, that the other 13 number one broadcasters are all white males. And yes, they're my friends, but yes, they all fit into this particular box. And that without doing something intentionally, that's not going to change. And that was, again, just part of the process in in putting this grant and scholarship fund together. And so what a lot of people might not know about, especially play-by-play broadcasting, is that breaking into it, you really don't make, even probably now, you really don't make a ton of money. So this is a conversation that's been coming up in media in general with, you know, unpaid internships. And we think society thinks that we have this meritocracy, but it's really your connections, your ability to have money to stay in a place like New York City, for example, when you're doing an unpaid internship and being able to pay for it, connections, families, financial support. So that's kind of what you're addressing with with this grant fund, right? Right. It's it's an industry where you need a safety net of some sort, because, you know, even for me, and I've gotten more and more comfortable with the more I've talked about this, to, to talk about my specific situation where I, I grew up in an affluent town, an upper middle class family, and I was able to accept a job that paid me right out of college, 600 bucks a month. And that's, you know, 600 bucks a month without benefits. Uh, by the time I was 25, I was making $1,200 a month. But the other side of that is people look and they think, oh, he's 25 and he's the lead voice for the New York Yankees AA affiliate. And, you know, you have this kind of secret where you're going, yeah, but... I, the slightest bump in the road and my whole financial viability is out the window. And even still, as I'm starting this, I mean, I'm, 
you know, I'm doing games for UConn. I called about 200 games last year with all of my baseball and college programs that I work with. And I still have only just barely cracked a living wage. And that's with 10 years of experience and still as a contractor to not have benefits. And that's not to necessarily bring people to to feel bad for me, but that's to shine a light on I'm in a good situation. I mean, I have had 10 years of success and I've been able to work my way up into a body of work that so many broadcasters would look at and think, boy, if I could do what Adam's doing right now, all these games on ESPN Plus and Division One Athletics and the Yankees AAA, and I'm barely able to, again, crack a living wage. So that's more just to put into context what we're trying to address here, where it shouldn't just be somebody with a safety net from an upper middle class upbringing like myself that are able to get these jobs and, and make a run at a career. How much money have you been able to raise so far? You had kind of an outpouring of support pretty quickly. It was supposed to be $3,000, and that was what our goal was. We were looking to raise $3,000 for a grant. Minor league baseball jobs, when you're first starting out, they are basically mid-March to mid-September. So six months, that's the season, 140 games. I was hoping $500 a month would be a nice boost to an $800 or $1,000 stipend from the team already. So it's, you know, bring it up to maybe 1500 bucks a month could make it palatable for a college grad. And at this point, we have secured over $20,000 in donations and pledges. And we're starting to get interest from some companies and Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball looking to get involved. And so I think that in a great way, I have more on my hands than I bargained for. And it's been incredible to see the outpouring of support that's, that's come to the surface for this. That's great. How is the grant process actually going to work? How are you going to find the recipients of these grants and scholarships? Just the grassroots of this whole process. I've been able to have a lot of black broadcasters, young aspiring black broadcasters reach out to me. I've connected with them, but it's going to take some work because there's an organization called STAA, Sportscaster Talent Agency of America, and they have a pretty good pulse on college broadcasting. And they have this end of year award for college broadcasters where they put out the all America teams and about 250 college kids applied and only three of them were black. And so they acknowledge that there's an issue with that number and, you know, they're going to look into it. We're going to do our own work. Uh, We're going to collaborate certainly with STAA and make sure that people that have a a chance to get into one of these minor league jobs and have uh, a chance for one of these scholarships that we're reaching out and making sure that we're connecting with as many kids as possible. It's just so interesting because this is such a niche thing, but it shines such a light on the issues everywhere because black young men and women are not seeing black broadcasters. So they're not maybe thinking that that's a path they can go down. So it's this whole like chicken or the egg where, yeah, you're, (laughs) you're addressing one piece of it, but it's so much more complicated than that. Yeah, I've spoken to a lot of black broadcasters, younger black broadcasters, and they talked about ESPN Sports Center Stuart Scott, who passed away. And he's somebody who, before he came onto the scene, all the references on Sports Center, the pop culture references, were Seinfeld and Friends. And then Stuart Scott came on and he started bringing black culture to the airwaves. And we didn't know what we were missing until he was there. And I think that's what we're in right now, where in play-by-play, we don't quite know what we're missing until Black broadcasters get into those chairs and that we see all minorities and women. To have 160 minor league baseball teams and to have one current Black broadcaster, you know, that, that doesn't come close to 
reflecting the demographics of the country as a whole. And so that's what we're working towards. I remember growing up and going to school and and having a, a sports center reference. I heard Stuart Scott say something the night before. I had no idea what it was. The internet didn't exist then. And I and all my friends were going, what was, what was he talking about? What was that? And we tried to figure it out. And it was the cool thing to do. That's what I think we're hoping to achieve is just bring a, a diverse spectrum of voices into the field. How did you get into play-by-play? It's, as we talked about, a passion, uh, <laughs> passion career, not just uh, something you go into for the money. Yeah, it is it is something where I think about that. In high school, I had a couple of uh, social studies teachers, Chris Schmidt and John Layton at Franklin High School in Franklin, Massachusetts, that were varsity coaches, and they were part of my social study curriculum, and they, they knew that I was into sports. And so they said, hey, we're already filming these games anyway for practice purposes to go back and for the players to watch. Might as well plug a microphone into the camera and we'll send it off to the local access TV channel. So that's what they did. And for two years, I called girls basketball and I called some girls lacrosse. And so after graduating Franklin High School, I went from calling Franklin High School girls basketball to a couple of months later, I did an exhibition for UConn versus Team USA in October. And my girls basketball coach, John Layton at Franklin High School said, wow, you've really left us behind, haven't you? <laughs> and it's, it's just something where I, I mean, I can remember so vividly the moments at UConn for me, some of the best moments were so closely attached to the games that I called. And it wouldn't necessarily have been, you know, Kemba Walker's national championship run, which I got a chance to do, and the women's 90-game win streak that I got a chance to call, the Fiesta Bowl for the football team. But it's just all the, the smaller games as well, maybe a, a women's soccer game or a men's soccer game that most students wouldn't remember. But being on the call for those, those are some of my favorite memories as well. And, you know, I, I think that it's when you have that, that passion when you go on the air, you know immediately whether this is for me or this isn't for me. And within that first game doing UConn men's soccer against South Carolina, I, I remember walking back to my dorm, calling my parents on my flip phone and thinking, <laughs> this is exactly what I want to do with my life. And on the sidelines, Adam Giardino. Oh, my legs are still shaking from those pregame introductions. It's a sellout, 40,000. It was announced on Monday that this place would be sold out. And this is as loud a 40,000 as you could possibly pack into a stadium. Yeah, I listen to Adam all the time when he's on uh, the IMG Network because they do the UConn games with uh, my buddy Wayne Norman in uh, this last couple of years with uh, Mike Crispino. He's he's right on point with, with the inequities in the profession because unless you're at a big station or you're in a big network, uh, you make no money doing this kind of radio anyway. Uh, I can attest to that. I did it for, for free for about 12 years uh, in community radio down in Bridgeport. And WHOS has sent a lot of people into the profession, and that's good because you can hear guys on WEI. You can hear them all over the country. It's it's one of the unique opportunities that you have at a, at a radio station uh, when you're in college, and especially at a Division One school like UConn. It, you, you just can't get that opportunity otherwise. And so he did. He's he's on his way. I think he's going to do well, and he's going to continue to do this program. Yeah, and he's lifting other people up with him, which is great. You can learn more about the fund and donate to it at blackpxpfund.com. And Adam Giardino is on Twitter at Adam G-I-A-R-D-I-N-O. Great. Very interesting stuff. I thought for Tom's History Corner today, we, we would revisit a, or visit, I guess, a cherished Yukon icon. Yukon icon, that's easy for me to say. Uh, <laughs> Horse Barn Hill. Yeah. Which, as I think most people know, is named after uh, English professor Gretchen von Horsebarn. 
taught here in the 30s. No, it's not true. It's 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 they call it that because that there are barns where horses live. And <laughs> Uh, the Equin program at UConn actually dates back to the earliest days of the university, and in fact, before we were a university. Horses that were bred on campus at the time were uh, called draft horses. Basically, like terms like workhorse and horsepower have become sort of metaphors today, but they, I mean, they have real meaning in an agricultural context, particularly in the 19th century when horses did a lot of the, the heavy work on um, farms. So uh, the students who came to UConn to learn to be farmers had to learn how to work with horses. So for decades, uh, draft horses were bred here on campus. By the start of the 1930s, tractors had become much more common in farms. So the, the draft horses began to fade in importance in agriculture. And so different types of horses were bred and brought to campus for different reasons. But this really became concerted after World War II with the arrival of a very special horse to Yukon, uh, known as the Morgan horse. Oh, yeah, those are pretty horses. So the Morgan horses were bred to be uh, used by the U.S. Cavalry. These are the horses that were at Gettysburg during the Civil War, for example, hmm. uh, as well as other battles. Not just, but that's a famous one. Um, <laughs> and people who know this kind of thing uh, argue that the Morgan horse is the first truly American breed of horse, as opposed to breeds of horses brought from other parts of the world. Just a side note: there are actually parts of the country where horses are considered an invasive species. Like, if you go to the Outer Banks of North Carolina, there are... I was going to say, like, Chincoteague. Yeah, there's, like, wild Mustangs that were descendants of, of Mustangs that were brought over by Spanish explorers. And uh, the parts of the Outer Banks that are uh, administered by the National Park Service, like, there's a lot of tension because they eat the seagrasses that are nesting habitats for native seabirds. And so, like, the Park Service considers them an invasive species, but people That's love wild. the Mustangs. And, like, so there's, there's, like, a lot of push and pull over that. That, that wasn't a problem for us. The, the Morgan horse was part of the U.S. Cavalry. World War II, obviously, was you know pretty much the end of horses in cavalry. Actually, the last horse charge uh, in the U.S. military was made on uh, the 16th of January, 1942, in the Philippines. But the, the cavalry, the horses were retired. There is still a U.S. Cavalry. They, just, they don't use horses anymore. They use elephants, like the great Carthaginian Hannibal. <laughs> but so the entire horse breeding facility for the U.S. Army was a farm, a big farm in Vermont. And after the war, the farm was taken over by the University of Vermont, and lots of the horses were sent to land-grant universities throughout New England, including UConn. And so since then, uh, UConn has bred, has been home to hundreds of Morgan horses. It's a very special breed of horse. We are home to Morgan horses today. The UConn Morgan drill team, which you may or may not be aware of, they, uh, for example, they perform at homecoming, they perform in, in parades off campus and, and uh, horse show and events like that. They're all Morgan horses. They've been around since 1987. The Morgan horse is a big part of UConn's identity for the, the equestrian program. And there's a book that I would recommend. It's called My Horse, My Heart by Helen Scanlon. It's all about UConn's horse program. And, you know, Morgans are still being foaled on campus to this day. That's a, that's a fancy horse term. It means born. <laughs> I don't have the most recent list, but uh, in uh, 2019, there were four Morgan horses born at UConn. So the Morgans are a big part of UConn's identity and, and have been since the 40s. And uh, you can just walk around. Even in this uh, the pandemic time, like the, the drill team is obviously not doing what they normally do. The polo team is not doing any competition. Um, but you can still walk around Horse Barn Hill and uh, you can often see Morgans in the, the pasture. We have other types of horses at UConn, not just Morgans. I was going to ask, does the polo team use different kinds of horses or Morgans? They, they do. They, they, I think they use a variety of horses. Cool. And now my question is, Julie has had her favorite dog in the studio when we get back to Layside. 
Is Mr. Ed going to visit the studio? <laughs> Mr. Ed. Well, you, you, Tyler's you, way too young to get that reference. <laughs> that's a talking, that, that was a TV show about a talking horse. a talking horse. horse. I'm too young to get that reference, to be honest, but I watched a lot of Nick at Night as a kid. You can also buy a Morgan horse from Yukon. Hmm. Uh, right now, there's a number of horses for sale. My favorite is Mufasa. Oh. Uh, you, you just need a cool $8,000. I was going to say, for the low, low price of yeah, several grand. Are they, is there a website where I can look at them? Yes, absolutely. If you just, if you Google Yukon Morgan, Morgan horses, horses, the first thing that comes up is Yukon uh, horses for sale. It's, it's, it's a page link to the animal science program. The whole equestrian program is obviously part of uh, the animal science department and the College of Agriculture, Health, and Natural Resources more broadly. That's great. My husband gets mad enough when I send him dogs. I'm going to start sending him <laughs> horses. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, buy me this one. <laughs> Eight thousand is the high end. I will say there are more affordable horses there, but uh, you know, when you get a Morgan, you get the best. All right, there you go. I'm not going to buy a horse. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> so that's it this week, straight from the horse's mouth. As it were. <laughs> I was going to say, when you were talking about draft horses, don't look a draft horse in the mouth. Hey-o. Hey-o. Yeah, if, I, I think the Bud, the Budweiser horses would be like a good example of a draft Those are horse. Oh, is that what? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But right. like draft horse is like a horse category. It's like, you know, it's like that, a, yeah, it's like a, a pickup truck. Things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like a pickup truck. <laughs> yeah. The, te- the technical term. They pull things. Yes, that is a, te- a very technical equine science term. But no, it's neat, and I like to walk around Horse Barn Hill, and I like to look at the, the horses of all types. But uh, the Morgans, they're very distinctive. You go online, you look at... I don't want to describe them. I can't really paint a picture with my words, but like if you look at the Morgan horses, they're pretty distinctive looking. Often chestnut colored. I'll just leave that there. I'd like to request a cow story. I prefer the cows when I okay. go to Horse Barn Hill. Okay, I can work on We have cows. some good cow stories in uh, Yukon history. We do have some good cow stories. There's, there's one about a, a cow being led upstairs in a dorm. And then not, <laughs> not not being able to walk back down the stairs, and there's a big, a big ker- kerfuffle. Or cow, That's not good. Cowfuffle. Cowfuffle. <laughs> there must be cow pie stories to that as well. I'm sure. I'm well, sure. we also cloned a cow, which is pretty darn impressive. Yeah, you know, actually, I thought about doing Tom's History Corner on Jerry Yang, but then I, I came across some Morgan horse stuff, and I thought I'll do the horses Ooh. another day. Yeah, we'll do Jerry Yang another day. I hope you enjoyed this week. We certainly enjoyed it. Please make Tyler feel welcome. It's great to have him here. And um, you can find us online at Yukon Podcast. You can also check out at Maine underscore old. That's uh, a Twitter account where I, I, I post old pictures. I'll find some old Morgan horse pictures and put them up. And you can follow me at TJ Breen if for some reason you want to do that. Right now I'm just uh, tweeting pictures of wildfires in California. But hey, that's interesting. Julie, is anything you want to plug? I'm on Twitter at Julie Bartuka. I think that's about it. Tyler, is there anything you would like to plug? I guess I'll do my Twitter, uh, Ty Silverio. Um, I don't think I actually have any tweets right now, but <laughs> hey. <laughs> Ken is on TikTok, of course. Uh, Ken, other, other than your, your popular TikTok page, what else should people follow? Well, my adventures are on 91.7 WHUS and stores. You can sound alternative streaming online at WHUS.org. Saturdays, 3 to 6, the good music show. And that's my opinion of good music. And of course, the... A rebroadcast of the Yukon 360 podcast Fridays at 11 on the same station, 91.7. Very nice. Well, thanks, everyone, and uh, let's meet back here in two weeks.